I uh, hurriedly went, not hurriedly. Well, some people said last week was a blur. <laughs> I went so fast. And that's because I had a lot of material to cover. I have backed it down a little bit this week. Um, still a lot of material to cover. But one thing I did not do, I don't think I properly did, was I did not really summarize Daniel's reaction at the end of chapter 7. For the visitors, we are in uh, chapter uh, 7 and 8 of Daniel. Where did my little summary go? If it's not here, there it is. Okay. So, um, you know, Daniel 7 was the last of the Aramaic section of the book. As we've said, um, from a big perspective, the Hebrew, the Hebrew language comprised the, what I call the two outer buns, the very beginning of the book and then the end of the book. And then you have the Aramaic section, which was uh, chapters 2 through 7. So chapter 7 was kind of end, the end of the Aramaic section. And it had a message for the entire world to see whereas the Hebrew message was more geared to what the Hebrews would encounter and would help them in their understanding of things. As time would go along, as Daniel was talking about things that were going to happen way off in the distance, they didn't even know about. But after this really interesting vision of chapter 7, I just wanted to make sure we saw his reaction. And I'm just going to go ahead and read it. This is the end of the account. And as for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. Um, you know, I can almost see his face turning pale after seeing all the events that are happening and realizing he's, he's got enough awareness to know there's something bad that's going to happen down the road. And the saints of God are, will be persecuted by this world empire. And um, he's not, his reaction is not one of relief. It's not one of consolation. What he saw was just troubling. He understood that the wicked powers in the political world ultimately were accountable to God and would be punished by God. But he also understood that God's people would suffer under the reins of some of these people in various portions of time until, as, he, as the text says in chapter 7, the ancient of days said enough is enough. And that enough is enough is presented in terms of a court being held in, uh, in heaven where God is reigning and he, as you know in this particular instance, he pronounced judgment and then executed the judgment upon uh, the world power there. <clears throat> But um, I think, so when we summarize chapter 7, I think the big thing I just want to make sure we went back and look is this is a condition of society which is being disturbed by four successive empires. And they're going to be judged in their time by God with a particular severe judgment that was talked about upon the fourth kingdom. And in particular, because that one seems to oppose God himself Whereas you remember Nebuchadnezzar and even Darius at one point praised the God of Daniel and, uh, and Daniel's friends. But the most important thing that we learn is the kingdom of God would be established in the days of this fourth kingdom. And even though it be, would be persecuted by the world, it would be victorious, period. 
and the persecutor would be judged by God. His dominion would be taken away. God's dominion would never be taken away. God would always reign. His kingdom would endure forever. And so that is a definite consolation that is given to not only Daniel, but all of those that read the prophecies of Daniel after that time. And I think it's a blessing for us to always see that, to go back and reflect on that. God already knew that this was going to happen, but God had already basically said this is what's going to happen even in judgment upon these people. He had everything under his control. And um, I just want to make sure we went back and, and saw that as the end because we're trying to picture ourselves and put ourselves in Daniel's shoes as to what he's seeing. And he's not ever, just like here in chapter 8 to 9, he is not given all the details about things. He's given sometimes enough, like in the, like chapter 7. Remember the first time they explained, what's this all about? <clears throat> he was told in two verses what it's all about. And I can just see him going, that's it? That's all there is? <laughs> and sometimes that's all God was going to let him know. Remember, they went on and told him a little bit more. So, that's what I want to make sure we cover from there. Um, so, uh, we've talked about, I went, on, I went on that. So, tonight we're going to be going into uh, chapter 8, which is Daniel's second vision that he sees in uh, this particular book. Chapter 7 recorded a vision that appeared to him in the first year of Belshazzar. Then this vision in chapter 8 occurs two years later in the third year of Belshazzar. Now, you recall Belshazzar was the co-regent with his dad, Nabonidus, was the last of the Babylonian Empire. And remember, his dad went away for 10 years to go dig archaeology <laughs> and all that kind of stuff in a, in a place of an oasis. <clears throat> and then he comes back, you know, three or four years before Babylon Falls. So these places, these visions, both occur before the events of chapter 5 and before the end of Belshazzar's reign. So in the vision of chapter 7, God shows Daniel what would take place specifically over many years of time, but specifically in the days of the Roman Empire, that he would eventually obviously come about to fruition. But in this particular vision of chapter 8, God is going to show events that will take place between the fall of Babylon and the coming of the Roman Empire. So that's a whole different view and a whole different perspective. Now, as far as we know, Daniel lived and died in Babylon. We're not ever told anything about his family. We're not told anything about where he ended up dying, but it's where he was taken captive as a young boy and where he was trained and then he served valiantly in at least two empires. But now here in chapter 8, verse 1, he, is, he sees this vision, and he happens to be before a river in Shushan, one of the, and I may not be pronouncing these words right. Don't hold that against me, okay? Uh, one of the capital cities of the Medes and Persians, Shushan was the Hebrew for Susa. This city would later become one of the capital cities and the chief seat of the Persian Empire. It was a long distance away from Babylon itself. Now, was Daniel there or not? You can make a case either way. It could have been that he was there on government business, which would not have been unusual given the high place and authority 
in the, in the government that he held, but it could also be as something that happens to Ezekiel and his visions where the Spirit of the Lord took the prophet, placed them over here in a particular location to, in order to demonstrate this lesson more vividly. But in the end, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect anything of the vision at all. It just simply, in this case, seems to serve as an introduction to the story. So, in uh, verses, let's just skip on down then to verses 3 and 4, we see him, he lifted his eyes and he sees this vision. And he begins to explain the vision that he saw. And in verse 3, he describes this ram that had two horns. And the two horns were very high, but it mentioned that one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. And it eventually, as this will be explained, representing the Medes and the Persians, the Persians were the more important country that played a bigger role in history. So, like, you know, I'm a city boy. So I had to go ram goat, ram goat. Now, don't make fun of me, but I had to look at this and I go, oh, yeah, that's the ram. Because I remember them, you know, I remember seeing videos of two rams getting on their legs and just smashing each other. And then there is uh, the goat. And so that's my rendition of a goat. You can see these are definitely two little separate animals. Um, and that happens to be a mountain goat. I picked the biggest ones that I could see because I think he's probably seeing some big, big animals in this one. Um, but I also wanted to know what did he see? And since you can believe everything on the Internet, I actually got a picture of what he actually saw, and that's the rendition of what he saw. You see, there's the little horn, then there's the bigger horn that goes up a little bit higher, and then here's the goat, all right? So we'll get to that, but in case you wanted to know what he actually saw, just kidding, that's, that helped me understand from a visual perspective what's really, really happening, okay? So there's this battle of the ram, and there's a battle of the goats. Um, but unlike my pictures, I was saying this ram must have been an impressive ram. The very fact that he said its ram's horns were high suggests to me that this is a very large and mighty ram. Not just any ram, but a ram that was very, very large. Rams are known for their budding capabilities. That's the first thing that I remembered about all this. And so this, in my mind, this ram is the reigning champion of rams, okay? There's nobody that can beat him. So in addition to its size, the other thing that really got his attention was the horn, the fact that he was probably used to seeing this, but he was probably not used to seeing one that looked a little bit higher, okay? So that's how I kind of thought about that. It got his attention. But it's said that since he's so big, no wonder he could do what he wanted to do. And as the text goes on and says in verse 4, it saw him pushing westward, northward, and southward. And he could literally do what he wanted to do, and nobody could stop him. Um, anything that he set his mind out to do, no, part, no direction, there was no hindrance of any direction, whether it was northward count, um, and encompassing all the countries north, or whether it was south, or whether it was west. Now, it did not mention that... He was having to deal with any, anything from the eastward side. And you go, why? Well, that's because he already conquered all the eastern side. 
So it was, it was a matter of these guys were just trying to do world domination. The Eastern Front was already covered. So now it was, uh, I got to go get the North, the South, and the West. And that's exactly what he did. So he's unstoppable. He is a rolling machine that is getting his way. But then Daniel, all of a sudden, as he's watching this, it says in verse 5, suddenly a male goat came from the West. And he just wasn't tripping in. He just wasn't tropping in or a... What's the word I'm trying to say? Clicking himself in, you know, trotting. He wasn't doing that. He was described as he came from the west across the surface of the whole earth without even touching the ground. You ever seen a goat do that? Now, I know what small goats are like. Brother Raider in Tullahoma, where I grew up, raised goats. He loved goats. And I've, I've ridden goats. I've been bucked off of goats. But I've never seen a goat that could run and not touch the ground. So this obviously had to catch his attention as well. I called him the first goat plane, obviously, because of that. But it shows the rapid movement that which this goat and the, what the goat represented was able to do. But the most noticeable thing about this goat was the fact that it had a horn between his eyes, not the normal-looking horns that goats would have, but it had this massive horn between his eyes. And notice what it says about this goat. In verse 6, he says, he came to the ram that had the two horns, and then all of a sudden, he started running at the ram with furious power, according to the New King James Version. And Daniel saw him confront this ram, and then it said he moved with rage against him. So the goat is moving against rage against the ram. As he goes on to explain who these people represent, which is the Medes and Persians and the Greeks, it is interesting that the Greeks hated the Persians. I mean the Greek. The Greeks hated, yeah, the Greeks hated, who does I say? The Greeks hated the Persians. And it started some 150 years before the events that ever even transpired. So I just sometimes wonder if there's a little play in the words there. But he attacked the ram. He broke off the ram's two horns. And when he did that, the ram was, used, he was defenseless. He could no longer defend himself. Um, there was no power that could help him. No power would ever come to his aid. He was simply cast down to the ground, trampled upon. The very thing that he would use to defend himself is gone. So now he's in a heap of trouble. And it said there were no other animals and no other creature in no other country, in essence, that would ever come to his aid. So in verse 8, as he comes on down here, uh, we see a, as a result of all of this that the male goat, who now trampled underfoot the ram, grew himself to be very, very great. And he became very, very strong. And suddenly, at the very height of his strength, this large horn that was sticking out between the two eyes of the goat is broken off. And I'm sure Daniel's going, what does that mean? <laughs> but then, as soon as the, four, as the large horn breaks off, four horns grow up and appear on this goat. And they came up toward the four winds of heaven, 
depicting various places on the compass, the north, the south, the east, and the west. So these four notable horns are now, are not noticed concentrated in one area. They are instead going toward all points of the globe. What's that mean? He's thinking. <laughs> well, verse 9 comes along. And it says, and out of one of the big, so, oh, I should say, so now we have the big horn, it's broken off, the four new horns grow, arose, and then out of one of those horns, a little horn sprouted, which grew exceedingly great toward the south. It says it grew great toward the east and toward the glorious land. The first specific reference to something that's not necessarily a direction. So what could that be? Well, verse 10 says, It also grew up to the host of heaven, and it even cast down some of the stars to the ground and trampled them under a foot. In verse 11, it goes on to say that this little horn even exalted himself as high as the prince of the host, and by him the daily sacrifices were taken away, and the place of God's sanctuary was cast down. In other words, he took over the sanctuary. Hmm. Now, the host of heaven may figuratively refer to God's holy people, whereas the prince of hosts, just as we know in this one, seems in this context to only refer to God. And now in verse 12, we get the answer of why this little horn was given a big army to oppose the daily sacrifices and to cast down truth to the ground and prosper like he did. Was it because he was bigger than God? No. He was not bigger than God at all. <clears throat> he opposed God. But just like any other horn or any other kingdom that's been represented in the book of Daniel, God allowed this little horn to do what he did because of transgressions. Transgression of who? More than likely, it could be the transgression of the people, but it could also be referring to just the transgression of the little horn itself. And then we get down to verses 13 and 14. And this is an interesting one because this now is coming to the end of this particular vision. Verses 13 and 14, we are now invited to be with Daniel as he overhears a conversation, a conversation between a holy one and another holy one. Obviously, it was meant to be loud enough that he could hear and so he could understand the explanation of what's going on. But the one holy one asked the other one, how long will this vision be concerning these daily sacrifices and the transgression of desolation and the giving of both the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. In other words, how long is this guy going to be allowed to do what he's doing to the sanctuary? That was the question. And then in verse 14, the answer was given. He's going to be allowed to do this 2,300 days. And Daniel's going, away. write that down. And after 2,300 days, the sanctuary will then be cleansed. And obviously, what does that mean? What is he seeing about this? Well, it seems to me that he's surely seeing some kind of assurance that God would eventually come to the aid of his people, even though they're going to be allowed to suffer 
for this period of time, which has a beginning and an end, but God would eventually deliver them and he would do what he did to his people when they were in the time of the judges. Eventually, God would deliver them and he would come to their aid and come to the rescue. And in a nutshell, that is what Daniel saw as the vision. 13, 14 short verses. Now, in verse 15, we learn that he's trying to figure out the meaning. Notice what he says. He says, and then it happened. And when I, Daniel, had seen the vision and was seeking the meaning, he's pondering, what did I just see? What does all this mean? I, I, I recognize all of this. I see it. But what does it really mean? Does it mean something for me? Does it mean something for my people here in captivity? Or does it mean something way down the road? I mean, he's just, he don't know. He's trying to figure out what does it all mean? So, all of a sudden, there suddenly appeared before me, one stood before me, one having the appearance of a man. So, he's now seen a ram. He's seen a goat. He's seen a goat demolish the ram. And he's trying to figure out what all this is. And then all of a sudden, he hears these two holy ones having a conversation. And they tell each other it's going to be 2,300 days when all this guy, this little horn is going to be allowed to do all this destruction. And then he also now all of a sudden sees another one appearing before him. When we get into verse 16, or uh, so that was Daniel's second vision. When we get into verses 15 through 25, we will now see how the vision was interpreted. And the first thing that we're going to look at is the inspired interpretation as recorded in the book of Daniel. And then we'll look at historical interpretations, okay? So verse 16 tells us that not only did this person have the appearance of a man, but this person also had a man's voice. And he heard this man call out to Gabriel. And he said, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. In other words, tell me more about the vision so that he can better un be informed or tell him more about it. Now, as I mentioned earlier, as we see, he doesn't tell Daniel every detail that could be told. God simply allows him to hear what God wants him to hear at this particular time. In the end, he'll be still scratching his head about a number of things that weren't explained in detail, and that's just the way it's going to be, okay? Um, in verses 15 through 19, we have the interaction between Gabriel and Daniel as Gabriel, who is the interpreter, shows up to tell Daniel what all this means. In verse 17, we see that Gabriel did exactly as he was told to do, go to this man and explain the vision. So he came near to where Daniel was standing. And when he did, what was Daniel's reaction? He was scared to death. He was so scared that he fell on his face. So in an attempt to help Daniel, he lets him know that basically this vision, in verse 17, deals with something that will happen to the, quote, time of the end. In other words, this is at the end of the kingdom's representative. Uh, it's not the end of the world. It simply means the vision will have its fulfillment or end at the proper time. 
In other words, it is on whose schedule? God's schedule. And that's all you need to know. <laughs> and you need to trust God. But in verse 18, it seems the experience was still overwhelming to Daniel. And he was now, it says, in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. We might say in our vernacular, he fainted and passed out. And that's pretty much what I think is happening there. He fainted and passed out. But Gabriel touched him and he stood him upright on his feet in verse 18. And then he begins to let him know in verse 19, I'm going to tell you some things that are going to happen in the latter time of the indignation. In other words, it pertained to the time after the wrath had ended, that is, following probably one or two things. Either the time of the 70 years of captivity that God had predicted upon Babylon to be there, or it could refer to some other time that his people would simply fall away at a later date, which they did. And then they, as they did on numerous occasions, but then they would come back. But the bottom line, it would always still be on God's schedule. Um, it is interesting. Daniel did know 70 years, 70 years. I know I'm supposed to be here 70 years, but what Jeremiah said. So could this affect what I'm ha what's happening with me? Could this 70 years be extended? I mean, that's what I'm thinking is going on in his mind. What's all this mean? Um, and in the next six verses, he then tells Daniel as much detail as God allows him to know. So in verse 20, he comes right out with the first explanation. The ram which you saw, Daniel, having the two horns, they are the kings of Media and Persia. And by the way, and the male goat, he goes on in verse 21. So let's just look at that. These are the kings of Media and Persia. What are you going to tell me about that? Nothing. <laughs> he tells them absolutely nothing. He just says, that's what it is. And then we're going to go on. Now, I'm going to call a little time out in this biblical interpretation. I want you to think what Daniel is thinking at this particular time. Maybe, and this is David Job thinking, maybe Daniel's thinking, Media and Persia, really? Is that what you mean? Media and Persia is going to be coming up, taking over? As a counselor, more than likely, as a top, top counselor to the king, more than likely he knew of the growing threat of the Medes and the Persians. Uh, he would also have been aware that Nabonidus was obviously concerned about that because Nabonidus had attempted to form an alliance with Lydia and with Egypt just to protect himself from the Medes and the Persians. Historically, is what's going on. Now, the Medes and the Persians were already a power. They were already in control of most of the empire that they would have come to have control of in its entirety. The only thing basically left in their sights was Babylon. And you recall, Babylon eventually would fall to the Medes and Persians just a few years down the road. But for now, it's the Babylons, Babylonians who are still in power. That's the power that Daniel's working for. That's the power that the captives are now forced to observe and serve. And that's the one he's probably thinking so far, but what he's learned is the Medes and Persians are going to rise to a very high level of political and military power, but will it affect me? We're not told whether he knew that. 
we can only assume that might happen. Since because he's in the position that he is. He's not somebody who never ever is concerned about anything. He's an advisor to the king. He would know these kinds of things. Well, in verse 21, he then skips to a very simple explanation. Remember verse 20 of the ram, the kings of the media, media and Persia. In verse 21, he goes on to explain what the male goat is. Um, he comes right out with this one as well. Gabriel plainly says, it is the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn that is between this goat's eyes is the first king of Greece. Another time out. What is Daniel thinking? What does Daniel know at this particular time? If he was aware of any of the geopolitical activities at that time, he would have known that the Greeks were no threat to the Babylonians. They were a bunch of small city-states that were constantly fighting each other. How in the world is he thinking that they are going to join together to become a powerful nation? And besides, there had never been any great force that ever came from the West to conquer the mighty empires of the East. So it's another head-scratcher, I'm sure. Greeks? <laughs> but he doesn't object. He goes on. In verse 22, he learns a little bit more information. Gabriel said, you know that horn that was between the eyes of the goat that represents its first king? Yes, well, it's going to be broken off, and in its place, four other horns will arise, which represent four kingdoms that shall arise out of that nation, but none with the power of the first kingdom. Okay, so we have the big horn who's going to eventually go away and be replaced by four little horns, and none of these four little horns match the power of the big horn that sticks out on the goat between the eyes. Makes sense to him, right? Yep, it does. Um, I could also have another history, history time out here. This he-goat would eventually come about 200 years later. 200 years. So God is talking about time that's going to happen way down the road, just like the Roman Empire, way down the road. The Grecian Empire would be 200 years after this vision. Its first king would be Alexander the Great in 356 through 326. He then would succeed in defeating the Ram, the Medes and the Persians. And that's an interesting story in and of itself historically. But this large horn, Alexander, would be broken off and would be replaced by four horns or kingdoms as part of this Grecian empire. And as it exactly happened in history, four kingdoms, actually a little bit more than four, arose out of the empire, but eventually settled into four main kingdoms that had been conquered by Alexander the Great. Now, verses 23 and 20 through 25 are the heart and soul of the chapter. I guess I need to get caught up here. <clears throat> Oh, by the way, those are the four kingdoms that would arise. Greece and Macedon. Um, I practiced pronouncing these names 
but I don't know if I want to try it. Antipater and Cassander, Thrace in Asia Minor, and there's some other little places that are that are talked about in there I could mention as well. Uh, Lysicomus, Asia, less Asia Minor and Palestine, which also would include Syria, another place, uh, Seleucus, and Egypt in Palestine. This is the one I practice the most because they said the P is silent. It's Ptolemy. Everybody's going, yeah. Everybody that knows this says, you did that right. <laughs> Because when I first pronounced it, I said Ptolemy. <laughs> All right, so those were, those were the four kingdoms that would eventually rise. Um, so we're getting back to verses 23 and 25. We're talking about after this would arise, this little horn. And in the latter time of their kingdom, of their kingdom, the four horns, when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise. And then verses 23 and 20 through 25 are the only kings that are king horn that is described in detail in terms of its characteristics. He doesn't describe anybody else. He doesn't even describe the big horn, the first king out of Greece. But he does make specific mention of this one. And you can see on there what all he says in verses 23 through 25. He'll has fierce features. <clears throat> Um, this person will be, um, he will understand sinister schemes. Uh, he'll be powerful and mighty. Um, he will be, he will destroy things fearfully. He will prosper and thrive with his exploits. He will destroy the mighty and he will also destroy the holy people. Holy people, I believe, would be referencing God's holy people. He'll be cunning, and he shall cause deceit to prosper under his rule. He'll exalt himself in his own heart. By the way, the first Seleucid king, um, this is the first Seleucid king, if it's him, and I'm pretty sure it is, that named his name Theos, or God, on the coinage. He will destroy many in their prosperity. He will rise up against the priest of princes, the prince of princesses, referencing to God. But notice this one. He will be broken without human hands. You can do all that you want against God, but you can never overpower God. God is always in control. And God will make sure that God's will, will be done, period, okay? So, um, the vision and its interpretation have now ended. Gabriel concludes the conversation in verse 26, and he emphasizes two things. He emphasizes that the vision of the timing of the evenings and the mornings, the 2300 days in verse 14, is true. In other words, it is going to happen you can bank on it. It's going to be a specific period of time, and it will take place, just as God said it will. And you can seal up the vision for now because it does not apply to you. <laughs> it refers to many days down the road. You don't have to worry about anything happening to you. So you can seal it up and pack it away, which is really what he's saying there. You don't have to keep it unsealed, meaning that it would be something that would happen immediately or soon. This is something that's going to happen down the road. 
So I assume that a Gabriel eventually left in the vision and now Daniel is back to his normal life. But the vision caused him to feel very faint and sick for many, many days. But after finally recovering, it says in verse 27 that he got up and that he started working again, going about the king's business. And apparently he also shared this vision with others. Um, don't know who that would be. Context doesn't say, but whoever he shared it with, guess what? They didn't know what it meant either. Everybody was at a loss. God gave no one else any more information that Daniel himself had already been given. Okay? Now, that is the inspired interpretation as given by Daniel. Now, let's look at the historical interpretation based upon looking at history of what happened during these particular times. Uh, the first part of this vision seems to be pretty easy to interpret because the angel Gabriel explains it to Daniel in terms that could easily match up with history. In fact, it seems sometimes so easy to interpret that we think we are reading history instead of prophecy. But we have to remember these things and these events had not taken place yet. They were to happen in years ahead. And we need to make sure we understand that so that our faith then grows, just like his would grow, as we see how God completely knew the future and God was always under control and he had it in control. And as we've already discussed, the Medes and the Persians were already in control of a great portion of the empire when Daniel had this vision. They conquered the city of Babylon very soon after this. And we understand that the ram with its two horns fit this Medo-Persian empire. And that's exactly what was, was said. Um, but history also helps us understand more about the he-goat, this goat that came bounding in from the west. The angel said that the goat's one horn represents the first king of Greece. When Daniel had this vision, we mentioned that Greece was nothing. It was a bunch of city-states. But a great he-goat did come to be some 200 years later out of the west, and it was Alexander the Great, according to history. Um, he would succeed in defeating the ram, he would, that is the Medes and the Persians, and this great horn of the he-goat would be broken off himself. Alexander died at the young age of 32, I'm told, from a fever. <laughs> okay? At the very height of his power, he's broken off. And he was replaced by four horns, which indeed was exactly what happened in the empire. His four kingdoms arose, and we talked about that. It was on the vision. But then the vision becomes a little bit more difficult after that one. That's because it refers to things that the Bible has nothing to say about. It's things that happened during the biblical period of silence. Silence being, at least we don't know, we have nothing that's recorded that talks about the 400 years of silence that we, when we refer to the biblical period. So we do have to look at history. And the history does tell us these victories of Alexander are great and of his kingdom being divided after his death. And from those four kingdoms, there was a king, and I can't, I'm going to promise I will butcher this guy's name. I'm going to spell it, A-N-T-I-O-C-H-U-S. Anybody? Antiochus. Who? Antiochus. Antiochus, like Antioch. Oh, there you go, Antiochus, okay. Antiochus IV. Hey, I'll, I'll remember that now. And he arose in the Seleucid kingdom of Syria, and he caused much mystery, misery 
to the Jews who had returned to Jerusalem, remember, after they were released from captivity and had been thriving there for some hundreds of years. And if you remember the geography, where is Judea in between? It's in between Syria and Egypt, and it really acts as a buffer state. Now, is he the fierce king talked about in verse 23? It's thought by most scholars that he is. And if he is, if it is him, he ruled over Syria between 175 and 163 B.C. This is 148 years after Alexander the Great. He was a devotee of Hellenistic Greek culture, and he was determined to transform the kingdom into a Greek city and Greek state by imposing Greek culture and Greek worship on everybody that he conquered, including the Jews. However, when you're running up against Orthodox Hebrews who will not believe the Greek culture and the Greek gods, you have a problem. And since he needed Judea as his own piece of land, as the buffer against Egypt, he made it his desire to defeat Jerusalem. And historically, that's what he tried to do. So he conquered Jerusalem. And when he did, he did some awful things. He, see, he set up an image in the temple. He desecrated the worship offering swine upon the altar of the burnt offering. He encouraged Greek soldiers with their lovers to commit ritual fornication in and around the temple. To further induce his purpose, he forbade the Jews to circumcise their children, to observe the Sabbath, and to even possess a copy of the scriptures. He appointed a high priest who was favorable to the Hellenistic movement. He built a stadium in Jerusalem and encouraged the Hebrew youth to participate in gymnastic exercises in the nude, which is exactly what the Greeks did. And laws pertaining to these matters were strictly enforced with utmost cruelty. He stopped the daily sacrifices and he simply desecrated the temple just as the vision predicted. As a matter of fact, it was these events that brought about the Maccabean, did I say that right? Maccabean. <laughs> the Maccabean nut, okay? The Maccabean revolt in the years 167 through 164, and that set off a chain of events that went all the way to the birth of Christ. Now, these 2,300 days refer to a period where these outrageous events would take place in the city. Usually when a figure like that is used, it's describing something that would have a definite beginning and a definite end date, but the time itself is actually unspecified. And there are generally two thoughts of what these 2,300 days meant. They literally could be like uh, 2,300 days, meaning a little bit over six years, or there's a term that refers to evening and morning, morning and evening, so that one day would have both of those, so it would be half of the 23 or roughly 1,150 days, which would be three years. And I'll leave all that reading to you, okay? Uh, lots of discussion both ways about it. It's very, very interesting. When the Maccabean Maccab revolt successfully led to the overthrow of the Syrian supremacy in Jerusalem by the Maccabees, the temple was cleansed, the worship was rededicated, and the feast of the dedication that is mentioned in the book of John chapter 10, verse 22, was a commemoration of that particular cleansing of the temple. So in this vision, God was preparing his people for trying days ahead, and he was assuring them that God would prevail and he would break the power of Antiochus. And the fulfillment of the prophecy such as this furnished evidence of the inspiration of the scriptures. Because truly, Daniel was speaking of things 
that he was moved by the Spirit, what he saw, and he talked about things that he had no clue about, just like 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21 says. And there's the lesson. Thank you.